0: Welcome to the Economics Explained podcast. I'm your host, Gene Tunney. So-called surveillance capitalism was one of the big issues for the 2020s that I identified in my first episode this year. Google, Facebook and other tech giants have massive amounts of data on us and they are using it for commercial gain. In this episode, I discuss various perspectives on surveillance capitalism with my good friend, Darren brady Nelson, Chief Economist of Liberty Works, an Australian libertarian think tank. Darren's recently had an article published on the Mises Institute website titled Surveillance Capitalism, a Summary of Critics. Be sure to check out the show notes for a link to Darren's article and for some notes on some of the controversial issues we discuss in this episode. This is Darren's second appearance on Economics Explained, we spoke via Zoom video conferencing on the 18th of January 2020. We begin our discussion with me asking Darren to tell us about his recent article. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Darren Brady Nelson, welcome back to the podcast.
1: Hello, Gene. Thank you for having me back.
0: Very good. Now, Darren, you and I have both been chatting a lot about surveillance capitalism. This was one of the issues I brought up in my big issues for the 2020s. It's something I've been thinking a lot about because there are a lot of concerns out there about the rise of surveillance capitalism, Google and Facebook and Amazon and all the information they have on us and there are concerns that they're exploiting that information for both commercial, there are commercial uh, benefits to those companies there are also concerns that their data have been used in, uh, to help particular political candidates. All sorts of concerns have been expressed. Could we begin the discussion by you just providing us with an overview of what your article's about, what you're trying to do in that article?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, well, for, for, your, uh, for the listeners, um, you prompted me um, obviously, particularly to do this this podcast. To, it, it actually was something I was also wondering about, too. I was kind of like, you know, I hadn't done a whole lot of research on it uh, prior to um, doing my article. Uh, but since then, obviously, for my article, I did quite a bit of research. And, it, you know, it was good. It was actually, you know, I'm, I'm still concerned and I still have some of the concerns, the ones that you mentioned and that others have mentioned, um, but I, I'm a far less concerned. Uh, it was interesting... And I should have been surprised because, you know, I've gone through this uh, rodeo a number of times. You know, I remember in the 90s when people were concerned about Microsoft in the 2000s, particularly early 2000s, about the dog comms. And, you know, it, it basically there's always concerns about, uh-oh, what's going on here? Is there, a, you know, people then jump to, is there a new economics or something going on here? Um, and as I discovered, there isn't. So I, I ended up, doing some research, if you like, putting aside that these categories are never all that great, you know, left, center, and and right. Um, I thought I'd kind of look across the spectrum and see what the concerns are and what people were saying, and also what they thought the solutions are. Um, And my article, you know, breaks down some of the things that I found. I, you know, I guess conveniently break it down into kind of, you know, what are people on the left saying, what are people in the middle saying, and what are people on the right saying.
0: Okay, so could we begin with what the the concerns of the people on the left are? Could we begin with those? So there's that book that's come out by Shoshana Zuboff, "The Age of Surveillance Capitalism: The Fight for a Human Future at the New Frontier of Power." And if I remember correctly, <laughs> well, that's the title. It's uh, it's quite, know, it's sorry, quite I'm effective. <laughs> 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 Good for book sales. Yes. I, she's one of – that book by uh, Shoshana Zuboff, uh, who's a professor at uh, Harvard Business School, you characterise that as being – that's one of the books on the left, you'd, you, you'd say, isn't it? Would you be able to just describe oh, what you think the leftist critique is?
1: Oh, look, you know, there's always variety. Um, you know, there's not just say one point of view – uh, even on the left. I, I, I tend to find less variety on those on the left than I do on the right, but still, there's still some variety. Because, and looking at some of the, the there were sort of some interviews that I looked at and, and commentary. And and basically what, what I looked at, and probably not so much Zuboff for cell, but it seemed to be just an excuse to sort of bring up sort of the various problems that people on the left had with just capitalism in general when you look through all this stuff they you know first of all they weren't doing a whole lot of extra research to to see okay what evidence is it that this is some outcome of capitalism um i mean the economy is almost sadly it's almost 50 50 government and if you like capitalism so it's interesting how people on the left always ignore that other part of the 50 percent, government government is a massive player um Depends on you measure these things, um, but government has a, a big role to play. And it's ironic given that people, you know, they obviously people on the left think government can do something and, uh, and affect change, but they never go back to say, well, did government try to affect some sort of change in the past, and thus we're getting this problem now. So as I read through a number of different, um, you know, interviews with her in commentary, one key theme that came out, not the only theme, but probably the key theme was that a lot of these people have a problem with capitalism and they wanted to use this as another opportunity to lobby for government to intervene in some way. And they've been successful because my article pointed out a couple of new laws, if you like, one in Europe and one in California.
0: Yes, that's right. Uh, so you see this as the latest critique of capitalism and yeah. you could go back to previous critiques such as... Uh, well, what we saw, well, you mentioned Microsoft in the '90s. So the there was a DOJ case, wasn't there? Was a, there a Department of Justice antitrust case against Microsoft with its uh, with its browser, the Internet Explorer yeah. browser? And you know, you go back even earlier, and there were the case, the famous antitrust cases in the Progressive era. And well, what I'd ask is isn't there some justification for being concerned about monopoly power? I mean, if you're a company and you attain that status of being a monopoly, then you can use that monopoly power to exploit consumers. Uh, in the old days, it was through high prices on those actual consumers, the, arguably on purchases of, uh, of oil or on, uh, you know, purchases of railway services, the people who had to ship things by railroad. And with, uh, with Google and Facebook, well, they're, they're monetizing this digital exhaust, all this data they have on us by selling that information, this, these prediction products to businesses and they're, they're selling that for, for high prices. And, and arguably they're selling our data so that, that information should belong to us, and yet they're taking, the, they're taking commercial advantage of it so that there can be really targeted ads at us. I mean, are you concerned at all about that, that they're, because they're, they've attained this position at the peak of the economy and arguably it's because of these so-called network effects? Facebook has 2 billion people worldwide in its network. How can any social network compete with that? Because the benefit comes from having everyone else connected, is that at all a justification yeah. for intervention?
1: Well, you, you actually threw in quite a few different issues together. Uh, you talked about monopoly power. You talked about sort of network effects. You know, you talked about you know, is it our data or is it their data? Yeah, look, the, these are all things you know, issues to be explored. So, and I would be concerned. I would be concerned with all these um, where I don't. You know, as an economist and as a a free market economist, I don't automatically jump to the conclusion that this is some failure of capitalism or failure of markets, and thus quickly government needs to solve it, right? I tend to see, like, I've been doing, you know, like you, I've been doing economics and as a, a, you know, in a professional sense for decades now. And I've found more through my experience and just like reading different sort of takes on all this sort of stuff that. Monopoly power almost always comes from government in some way. You know, it comes from some sort of grant, some sort of privilege. Typically, the best way, if you like, um, through a regulation or a law, because that's the hardest to find, because my other qualification besides economics is in law. And and the devil's in the detail. And I actually, um, in my article, I do find I give you some detail on a potential source. And no doubt it's not the only source of, of where sort of. A special advantage that Google and others get, um, and this is from a U.S. law that basically treats, you know, that it makes a distinction between publishers and platforms. And and if you're considered a platform under this law, you get some special privileges that you want as a publisher. And and those it, it, basically it's it's another case of government legislation or regulation overriding. The normal course of common law, the common law of contract, the common law of tort, common law of property. Now, you know, obviously for an article, I didn't have a chance to sort of investigate this in quite as much depth as as one would probably like to. But I was just, I think there's an interesting thing to explore, as you mentioned, is it, you know, is the data ours, is it not ours? And the devil again would be in the detail, you know, like, well, okay, uh, let's look at obviously property and contract law and what does it usually say in these circumstances um, and also, to what extent is there's again some laws or something elsewhere that's given maybe Google an end around that they normally wouldn't get. You know, say for instance, maybe it is would normally be considered ours. So again, you know, my instinct and it's and it's and I haven't so far I've been you know found that I've been proven wrong that government is somehow and I'm just saying government's always intentionally behind things. Sometimes these are unintentional outcomes of, of laws and regulations. Sadly, sometimes it's not. So, so yes, and I, also when you see, if you like, a sort of a cartel type arrangement or you know a concentration of power, you need to go see what's going on there, seeing where is this coming from. Is you know could you pa- plausibly argue this is some sort of market outcome? And even if it is, should you leave it up to the market to solve the problem? And I go through in my article. Obviously, uh, one writer in particular. George Gilder, who's, who's quite a you know, famous supply-side economist, who would argue, look, there's already stuff coming around now that's that's already undermining Google, blockchain, and another author mentions—I uh, forgot what it's called—quantum um, uh, computing. So basically, the market's already starting to solve the problem. Not to mention that other sort of Austrian economists point out that, and I think rightfully so, go unlike government. Even though Google, don't, if you like, dominates its market, although we can, we can revisit that because I found people in the middle who said, no, they don't really, you know, they're significant, but they don't actually dominate. Um, so we can revisit that uh, later on in the discussion. But even if they did, you still have lots of choices not to use them. You know, like on the search engine side of things, you know, I purposely go out of my way not to use Google because I get annoyed by their political bias. I mean, they are very politically biased. I mean, maybe Blind Freddy can't see it, but most other people can see it. But yet, I have other choices. I can go elsewhere, and and that's what I'm doing. Okay. You mentioned the
0: law of contracts. So on this issue of data and who owns it, what appears to have happened is that we've signed away the rights to our data in a way, haven't we, through all of these license agreements, which mean that... These companies can use our data to, you know, to turn them into these prediction products as Shoshana Zuboff calls them yep. and they can provide them to uh, to other, to third parties. Are you surprised at how quickly or how cheaply we've given away our privacy, we've traded it for the convenience, for entertainment associated with, with these... Uh, these products with uh, with Google, with Amazon, with with Facebook, is that something that surprised you? Because for many years, privacy was always held up as something that was a, a very important value to people, but by our actions, we've revealed that it doesn't appear to be. Do you have any thoughts on that, Darren?
1: Um, yeah, look, I'm, I'm not surprised because a lot of sort of contracts common law contract has been overridden by legislation and regulations. And uh, government, you know, when they keep on passing all these laws and then bureaucrats on top of it create all these regulations, it's getting more and more complex. And, you know, um, you probably, and and the listeners may have heard that um, old phrase of, you know, like, if you get in trouble um, in law in some way, that ignorance of the law is no excuse. Well, that, that maxim you know, was around back in the days of the common law, you know, when, only, when there was only pretty much the common law. And then, the, you know, the common law is fairly simple, and that made sense in that context. But over the past hundred plus years of just the proliferation of government legislation, you know, that maxim, you know, should be revisited. Because I can even recall, you know, like going into to stores, and they'd have this huge sign in very small print about all of the Terms and conditions you've just agreed to by being in this store. And I've seen that also on products way before the digital age. So, so this is just, you know, the digital age didn't invent this, if you like. They've taken that previous thing, that previous response to the complexity and, and the onerousness of government laws, and they just adopted it at this stage. And to look at it, you know, and again, in a, in a different world when the common law ruled there was more opportunity and it was a lot cheaper to actually take action under the common law for the average, you know, just for the, the average punter. Now it's so, you know, so complex, the court system, so overburdened, etc. It's pretty hard to, to take on the Googles of this world or even much smaller businesses, to be honest. Um, but again, I think that's an outcome of, of government and its size and its encroachment as opposed to the market. I think the market, you know, which solve this problem a lot easier. The, the legal side, as well as just, you know, bringing competition to bear on the Googles of this world. And I think, it you know, despite all the impediments to free market competition, it still finds a way, just as, you know, authors have been pointing out, people are, you know, markets are finding a way with Bitcoin, they're finding, uh, sorry, with blockchain more broadly, I should say, and and um, quantum computing. And, and people will find a way with apps, you know, and, and various end arounds of Google, not to mention just different options for browsing, different options for Google, you know, alternatives to Google Mail, etc. cetera. Uh, you know, markets always find a way, um, but governments, you know, make that difficult and often more and more difficult for them to do that.
0: Yeah. Well, who was that economist that you mentioned? Was it Gilda who has written about these new technologies and how they might help reduce... Some of the power of these, uh, the current big tech companies. They provide more competition. You mentioned blockchain and quantum computing. I'm just struggling to understand how they might do that at the moment, but I can put a link to that paper or article in the show notes. So is that, was it Gilder?
1: Yeah, look, yeah, George Gilder. George Gilder, yeah. Um, he, he goes into some detail on obviously how that, you know, how it's already happening, I suppose. I think, um, and like Shoshana, he's got a, obviously, in the effort to sell books, you know, like um, anybody who's written a book, I'm just going to sort of look it up again. He's got a very provocative title as well, like Shoshana does. He he has two books that I mentioned, but the, the one with the more provocative title is, he calls it Life After Google, The Fall of Big Data and the Rise of the Blockchain Economy, you know. And, you know, like with Shoshana, that you know, obviously she's, you know, gives it a bit of a her thing, a bit of an alarming title as well. But, you know, there's truth in both sides, basically. Yes. But I think George Gilder, although he, he's obviously trying to make it sound a bit more extravagant, too. But I, when I look at what he's trying to say. I think there's more substance to what he says, not only because he's an economist, but he's actually a digital entrepreneur. He's had success and more importantly, failures in the digital economy. So, you know, as any good entrepreneur would, you know, because you learn from your failures probably more than you learn from your successes in anything, not just, you know, in business. So, you know, he's a person who's actually not just pontificating about this stuff. He puts his money where his mouth is. Uh, And, you know, obviously, time will tell to what extent he's correct or not. Uh, So he's investing in this stuff too, not just writing a book about it. Uh, Although his book isn't about, hey, invest in my company or anything like that you know he, he does take kind of the economist approach you know trying to be if you like objective as he can be but telling people hey look i'm in this i'm in the game too so just so you know but you know shoshana you know like i don't think she's you know i would say shoshana is for instance a socialist or anything like that but she uses a lot of the same sort of alarming marxian marxian sort of terminology i mean you didn't see it in the title of her book you know you know, these are like dead giveaways. I mean, you got to read further, obviously, which is which I did. You know, she has a more favorable view, strangely, of a previous age of capitalism than her sort of, if you like, other people on the left who obviously have a very bad view of previous capitalism. They just think, here we go again. So, and I think an important part that was pointed out on some of the the, the writers in the middle, besides showing that the market shares of Google and stuff weren't as high as claimed. They importantly point out, although they don't get the significance of this, they show that prices are going down. And, and here's a great parallel with like the, the, the big oil of the, the late 19th century to show you that the antitrust laws and the attacks on big oil were all mainly politically motivated largely by their rivals, the unsuccessful rivals, because the dead giveaway is even the antitrust laws, if done properly, you don't attack anybody with market power. That's not the point. In Australian or American law, you don't have a right to just go after a company that has market power. They have to abuse it. They have to misuse it. And what does that mean? And, and a key thing is you go, oh, look at prices are rising over some reasonable time frame, right? Well, oil, standard oil back in the 19th century, the prices were falling. So even if they are some awful monopolists or, or the leader of a cartel, well, prices were going down for consumers, so what's the problem? The same holds today with Google and the like, is their prices are going down. What prices are we talking about? We're not talking about, obviously, because we're us users are sort of using it for free, if you like. Obviously, it's not for free. I like, Obviously, the trade-off, and that's fine to expose us. trade-off is they're using our data, right? Um, and that's an important thing for people to be aware of and to push back on if people don't like it. So I don't have a problem with that. Uh, but I think pushing back through more sort of markets and, and the common law rather than running for government, you know, laws be passed. So basically prices, you know, advertising prices, you know, the prices that Google charges to people are falling. So that's a dead giveaway. There, you know, by the standard theories of, of structured conduct and performance, we don't have a problem at this stage. Keep an eye on it, as you always do. Um, but, it, you know, just like with Standard Oil, there really is no case for, for instance, antitrust intervention, be it in Australia or the US or anywhere else in the world. Yeah.
0: You raised an important point there, Darren. Well, you mentioned that structure, conduct, performance uh, framework. Could you just explain briefly, if you can, what that framework tells us?
1: Yeah, it, it's just... Uh, it's a, it's a fairly standard, um, standard paradigm of mainstream economics, used in a whole variety of circumstances. Structure refers to, you know, whether a markets a monopoly and, and oligopoly, which is, I'd like, say, a cartel's one type of oligopoly, or whether it's competitive. Those are, yeah, I mean, there's some other sort of granular variations of that, but that's ro- roughly it: monopoly, cartel, competition that's a structure and that will determine obviously the sort of conduct you'll, you'll see in that market and the key conduct, if you like, put aside like, you know, say bad behavior, you know, like, you know, Microsoft was alleged to do if you like bad behavior, Google is currently being um, alleged to be doing bad behavior, but a key bit of conduct is the prices. You know, what, what is their pricing? You know, what does their pricing look like? I mean, it, it, it becomes a gray area, whether that's conduct or performance and you can argue, well, no, performance, more of the profits, et cetera, that flow out of that. That's fine, too. You can go look at, see what their profits look like, what the returns look like, given their risk profiles, etc. cetera. That, that's all fine, too. So basically, using even the, the sort of mainstream approach, there doesn't seem to be, look, they have big, biggish market shares, not massive, like um, a politician, Senator Warren's claiming it's 70%. Well, she's wrong. You know, it's just not accurate whatsoever you know we're talking something more like between 30 and 50 percent right okay so but even then that's just the start of an investigation you know there's no action in australia or the u.s in law because of your size your market share um you start have to seeing how they're using that you know and pricing is a key thing not the only thing there's all sorts of non-pricing behavior as well um and and i'm concerned about that sort of stuff too like you know when i work for um senator roberts you know and he was chairing the rural banking inquiry and that was you know in many ways focused on the alleged bad behavior of banks and you know usually when i see bad behavior and if it's and if it's not just you know occasional if it's actually frequent usually that is a sign of uh someone dominating a market to some extent then again you know a lot of people stop at that they go oh do something well okay then the sign of dominating a market, not always, but more often than not, it's a sign of some sort of government privilege behind it. And the banks are like the, the kings and queens of government privilege. You know, and, and that's where I, as an economist, I tried to bring, you know, people, you know, like the senator and other people involved to go like, hey, let's keep on looking and go, well, what are the government regulations and other favors that actually, you know, at the end of the day, help create this situation that ends up and high prices, bad service and bad behavior.
0: Yes. So you mentioned before this distinction between platform and publisher and you've there are people out there who are arguing or commentators who are arguing that they get a special legal privilege because of how they're treated in the law which means that they're able to put a lot of stuff on there their platforms and uh, not be subject to uh, laws of uh, defamation? Is that basically the argument?
1: Um, it's more than defamation, but yeah. it's, it's in And um, as I wrote my article, uh, it's, it's Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, uh, which was originally, you know, came about in the early days of the internet. It was actually in response to a if you like, an unfavorable outcome under common law. And that's an unfavorable judicial decision where someone, you know, an early sort of digital company was held liable, essentially. And, you know, as is usually the case, then people start to lobby for a protection. I mean, not just this firm, but, you know, more broadly. And this is carried over. This wasn't Google, you know, but they benefited from it. So, you know, sometimes, obviously, it doesn't matter whether you are literally involved in lobbying for this special protection. Sometimes, you can get lucky, like a Google, and just get this protection anyway, because you're in the same category. So previously, there were, you know, so yeah. So basically, it, it treated a, a company, uh, a precursor to a Google, um, as you know, made them into, if you like, a platform as opposed to a publisher. A publisher would be held liable for defamation, a whole bunch of other um, things under common law, a, a particularly tort tort law, um, and they were exempted from that.
0: Okay, that's,
1: uh, that's and, it's, and it's and apparently it's a huge deal. It's like a it's it's not to, you know it's only one section of an act, but it's just been like if you like a huge windfall for for the likes of Google and and, and others.
0: Sure. So you're uh, you've identified something really important that a lot of monopolies are backed by government in some way. It's important to look through you know what we see. To find out what's uh, behind it so historically i mean the major monopolies were were granted by by kings and queens so for example the uh the east india company the british east india company or the dutch east india company and this is a point that i think if i remember correctly milton friedman used to emphasize i mean friedman Argued that the only enduring monopoly was one that was government backed. Otherwise, there would be there would eventually be entry by other market participants. It's very rare that there'd be any barriers to entry that would be insurmountable. Now, having mentioned Milton Friedman, and Milton Friedman passed away in the 2000s. He would have seen the beginning of this of the rise of these companies, but it's still very early on. It was before we all had smartphones and we're constantly checking our Facebook feeds and LinkedIn. What do you think Milton Friedman would have made of these big companies and uh, what would he be saying about them?
1: Look, uh, I, I really like the reference back to um, the Kings and Queens and the, um, the British East India Company because that's exactly right. Right. Um, Back in those days, and for a long, long time, actually, probably, I don't know, you know, certainly throughout the 19th century and at least into some of the 20th century, possibly well into the 20th century, the term monopoly, when people used to use it and hear it, they knew what it meant. It meant a grant by government of a monopoly, of some description. Um, this is actually how, for instance, the, um, the public utilities, particularly electricity and, and different sorts of public utilities... That's exactly how they came to become natural monopolies. In other words, they weren't natural at all. Government granted them, you know, franchise monopolies. So for a long, long time, economists and even people, lay people, knew what that meant. Now it's kind of like, that's changed. And people now associate monopoly more with, if you like, the, Marx, the Marxian point of view, where he alleged that capitalism, you know, over time will tend towards greater monopolization in each market, in each industry. Well, yeah, look, that's not the case at all. I think, um, not just in economic logic or theory, but I think history shows that Marx is wrong on many fronts, but including that front. Okay. Um, Okay. So, I'm sorry, to get back to to Milton Friedman, you know, obviously it's hard to speak to someone else, uh, particularly someone who's passed away. Uh, I, I think yeah, he would be, again, he would be alarmed by this. You know, obviously, he's, he's a guy who's been around the block many times. And, um, you know, I guess his Chicago point of view is, as he said, that, you know, over any sort of reasonable time, no monopoly, or cartel's really going to last. The Austrian point of view takes it further th- in the sense that, you know, unless government's behind it, and they would argue it's always behind any sort of monopoly, or. uh, power for any length of time, probably for, at all for any time, you don't need to really worry. The, the worry is just, you know, what is, you know, what is government doing? That's the thing you need to worry about because, you know, at a free market, if anybody, putting aside, you know, the legal aspects of what's a market, and that's actually a pretty important question. You know, what is a market? You know, people, you know, sort of a triple C type bureaucrats tend to have, for whatever reason, they have no creative thinking whatsoever. They have no great understanding what a market is. You know, they see it in such narrow physical terms of what a product is, what a market is. They're dead wrong. You know, like um, consumers and businesses are much more creative. You know, like particularly if you think about a consumer. Um, when you when you talk about a monetary economy, you know, substitutes are everything. You know, I can do ten, what, what I do with my ten or hundred dollars. You know, it's not like I'm restricted to the market that the C thinks I can sort of like switch my dollars around. And no, I can switch it all sorts of places. You know, products that have nothing to do with each other in a physical sense. So yeah, look, you know, again, there's no great concern because in a free market, if people are using Google more than anybody else, they chose it. You know, no one forced them to use it. Um, And that's the big key difference between, you know, a market and government markets. Coca-Cola, Google can't force you to use their products at all. Physically force you to use them. You can't come knocking on your door and say, drink Coke, use Google. Government can. They can. The guys with guns are billy clubs in Australia too can ultimately come to your door and tell you what to do.
0: That's uh, that's dead right. and I think we've, you made that point in one of our conversations about the NBN in Australia, uh, but we might get uh, distracted if... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> if, we yeah. go, if we go on that tangent so we might uh, we might leave that uh, to another day just on that point about the uh the market shares so you talk about Google well there are other uh browsers or there are other search engines rather such as uh where well, you can use the Bing search engine or you could use DuckDuckGo but so far Google is still dominant what's the source yeah of that, you mentioned, what's the source of the, the argument against what Elizabeth Warren is saying? She's saying that they have this very high market share. What, is there a source for that, Darren? We can put in the show notes that critique of what Elizabeth Warren was saying?
1: Uh, yes. Um, if you can't wait for my article to get published, um, let me just look up that specific uh, source. Yeah, found it. that particular one is is by an author called alex staff and again i can provide all the details and this article was <laughs> yeah, a very long title but and it tells you you know uh, the conclusion actually in the title it, it's a very long title called any way you measure it word is wrong to claim facebook and google account for 70 percent of all internet traffic so you know that so he's they're combining, obviously, you know, Warren is combining Facebook and Google together to suggest that all of Internet traffic is, you know, basically these guys dominate 70% of it. And he goes through in, in quite good detail and, and, you know, well referenced where he's getting these numbers from. And and he's also, unlike Warren, he says, look, there's many ways you could measure it. So I'm not going to suggest there's only one way to look at it. But he goes through multiple different ways, you know, you know, so at, at one low end. He has a 20% volume way to look at this. And remember, this is combined Google and Facebook. So obviously Google is smaller still than just combining Facebook and Google. So you know, he's got 20% combined for volume, 20, 21% combined for time, 38% in connections, 33% in referrals. And then he even looks at advertising, you know, 30% all advertising, which is not just online, but everything. Because obviously they competed to a great extent, and he, you know, and the biggest number is the one 59 percent for online advertising, Facebook and Google combined. Um, and he's also the one who looked at uh, advertising prices, which was an important point uh, to see that they were falling and falling was increasing. So yeah, e- even under their own terms, you know, they you look, you know, I'd say great, have a watching brief, keep an eye on all this sort of stuff as people will do, and we, but. You know, there's nothing to be alarmed about just yet. Look, I have concerns too, you know, which is why I don't use Google. I don't. I'm not so much concerned about them using my data, to tell you the truth. But that's fine. I don't mind people being concerned about that. That's fair enough. Everybody's different. I just don't like their political bias because, you know, I'm from the right side of politics. I'm not like a member of the Liberal Party or the Republicans, but I am you know, a combination conservative and libertarian and whatever else thrown in. And, you know, and I remember one time just to check this out for one of my little, if you like, blog posts on LinkedIn, um, I went to and did a Google search, put the word gender in, and it took till the 75th page, not the 75th entry, which would still be pretty, you know, way down, but the 75th page before we found, if you like, an article or an entry about Um, talking about the traditional view of gender, you know, the one that's been around for thousands and thousands of years. 75, 74 pages of the new fluid gender point of view. I don't mind, you know, I'm happy for all points of views to be there, but that's ridiculous that there's no way that that is some random algorithm, you know, value-free algorithm. That's that's on purpose. Now, uh, it's not on purpose in that somebody's literally on the other side of a computer, making sure that I don't see it until i page page. But, but people, you know, people are behind algorithms at the end of the day. Computers don't have a life of their own. Artificial intelligence isn't going to, isn't an intelligence in the sense of human intelligence. And it's not going to be, I would argue too. There's no way that ever will be anything like human intelligence. You know, people are dreaming. They're dreaming in both ways. Some people think that's fantastic. And some people think, Oh my God, I'm horrified. Well, it ain't going to ever
0: happen. Yeah, but I tend to agree with you on that. Uh, if you look at how how it's progressing, I mean, sure, we've got we've had some fantastic applications of AI, and I mean, one I use quite regularly is uh, with a transcription of audio files. But I think the idea of Skynet is is just crazy. <laughs> I just can't see that. Uh, I just can't oh, see that. Well,
1: look. I vividly remember um, when I was at ANU studying economics and, and history and law in, in the early to mid 90s. They're going like, "Oh, virtual reality is is coming, and we're going to all be living in it." I mean, not only is it coming, and it's going to be like really great, or possibly really bad, but you know, it's going to be something really huge, and we're going to it's going to be like we're all going to be stuck in virtual well. This year, we're still kind of waiting for it to be even halfway decent, to be honest. So, look, I'm not saying virtual reality might not be a fun little thing, and I, might, I certainly wouldn't suggest that AI might not be a useful tool, and it sounds like it is. But you know, the, people you know people often take these things to extremes in both directions. Yeah, the
0: big thing now, I think, is uh, augmented reality or AR. So that's become more prominent than. VR because, as you mentioned, the VR technology just isn't very good yet. It's not good enough yet to simulate reality. But what with AR, we saw that game Pokemon Go, which was driving people to go and chase those Pokemons, and you'd have businesses that were paying the company to you know, m- direct traffic to them, to direct foot traffic to them, and this has been seen as some, an example of uh, just how intrusive and how manipulative surveillance capitalism could be. So just thought I'd bring that up because I thought that that's an interesting example of, uh, of, you know, the things that people are concerned about with, with surveillance capitalism.
1: Oh, yes. But then, you know, obviously people knee jerk it right away and go, oh my God, you know, it's worse than what it is. And then the other knee jerk is, of course, government needs to do something about it. They need to do something right away. You know, that's just ridiculous. You know, like, first of all, no advertising ever forced anybody to do anything. Not for adults. Adults can make choices. They're not forced to do things. And with children, again, government's not going to be the protector of children. That's, that's the job of parents, you know, to, to protect their children. Yes, children need protection. Now, adolescents, I think, are a little bit different. I always, always wondered as, you know, former law student, you know, why on earth is there two categories of people, adult and child? I mean, adolescents are clearly... A third category, they need their own special consideration. So, you know, actual children, you know, like twelve and under type thing, yeah, they they definitely need protection. But that's the job of family, um, including their extended family and, and friends, and and to some extent, their schools, etc.
0: Okay, okay. Oh, gee, a lot of issues there. I mean, I, I think. I mean, I don't have children, so <laughs> I. But I, I understand it is difficult for parents to. Oversee the use of uh, you know, the internet by their children, and to monitor that, I, I think that would be a would be a great challenge. So maybe we do need some protection there. I I don't know what the answer is, but we've seen that governments have introduced some new laws. So in well,
1: the- j- j- sorry, just a quick one, yep. um, interesting one. Again, the market's already started. To, you know, it's been solving these things and continues to solve that stuff. You know, it gives parents the opportunity to you know, lock their children out. There's all sorts of different ways. I mean, even back before, you know, the, the digital stuff, uh, you know, the, if you like this, this you know, with, with TVs and stuff, you know, they were already having you know, parents' ability to kind of sort of keep some sort of control over what children are doing. It's actually even easier now, to be honest. It's actually, you know, because it's, it's more two-way technology than that sort of more one-way technology than it used to be. So, you know, Ultimately, parents need to be responsible for their, their children. Well, you know obviously there's some exceptions. Obviously they're off at school during the day. You know, see them, the schools take some sort of responsibility for that time period. Um, but you know look, markets are just people, including parents and children, and they can find ways.
0: Okay. In
1: your, uh, in your article, you
0: do mention that there have been some legislative moves to uh, to regulate uh, these companies, particularly with regard to the use of data we've seen in the EU, we've seen that uh, General Data Protection Regulation, if I've got it right, the GDPR, and in California we've seen a new privacy laws. Do you have any comments on those laws and whether more needs to be done?
1: Um, yeah, yeah, you're right. I think uh, the European one, yeah, general data protection regulation and the california one is called the california consumer privacy act uh look they're they're very brand new so you know i haven't looked at the haven't looked at them in in details because again as i said once or twice the devil is in the details obviously we'll see how they operate over time so it's obviously really too early to say certainly too early to say they need more i i i doubt very highly they even needed these to be honest. But it's interesting in, in a couple of the articles, the the two articles that reported on these things, both were immediately lobbying for more. You know, so you know, how can they? Because these things have just started. You know, one started the European one. I think started well, uh, maybe a bit longer ago. It was the middle of 2018. Okay, so there's a little bit of a track record, but still kind of you know maybe a bit early. California one just came in on the 1st of January. Um, And even the article that reported on that was already starting to call for more. That particular article was calling for a lot more, basically. So like government regulation isn't good enough. We need even more government doing something more. And now they didn't say what that should be. You know, I'm not sure that nationalization, perhaps, who knows. Now I'd be heavily skeptical that these laws were needed at all. And I would also be skeptical that they're, even doing what they're supposedly supposed to do. That what often happens with laws. Often they don't even do what they say they're gonna do. And of course, you know, everybody on the left never calls for them to be repealed and let let the greatest regulator of all take over. Competition, no. It's usually obviously we need to augment it with more laws and regulations to then not work again, cause lots of bad, unintended consequences. This has pretty much been the history of all government regulations and laws is you know just heaps of unintended bad consequences.
0: Okay. I like your line about competition being the best regulator. There's a lot of truth to that. So, look, I agree. We've got to wait. Well, I agree we need to wait and see how these current laws uh how they impact, you know, whether whether they do lead to changes in behaviour or whether they do lead to, you know, are there unintended consequences and all that. So it's probably a bit early to tell. I'll put some links to discussions of those laws in the show notes. Okay, before I ask the last question, Darren, could you please tell us where we can find you on the internet?
1: Uh, yeah, there's a, there's a number of places. Um, one would be... LinkedIn. I'm, I'm loving LinkedIn at the moment. So LinkedIn, Darren Brady Nelson, uh, and probably another, particularly for an Australian audience, uh, Liberty Works. You know that's uh, a think tank, an uh, Australian think tank based in Brisbane uh, that I'm um, the chief economist and on the board of, uh, and that's run by Andrew Cooper, who also every year puts on a variety of Liberty Fests around the country, and he put and last year he put on. The first Australian version of CPAC, which was a great success, got a lot. There's a lot of controversy, but that controversy was awesome because, you know, it got a lot of media attention to CPAC and a lot of people showed up, and it was a great event.
0: Okay, so I don't have to use uh, the name of a particular company as a verb, a company that we've mentioned a lot in this uh, discussion to say how people can find Liberty Works. Could you just do you know that? <laughs> Do you know the yeah. URL of the-
1: Yeah, it's a uh, LibertyWorks.org.au. Good stuff. I just thought it. Uh, but okay. if you want, if you want to Google it, go for it. Yeah, <laughs> okay. I don't. I don't have a. You know, maybe, maybe Liberty Works will be on the the fiftieth page or something. But who knows? Uh, uh, um, well, actually, we should uh, test uh, that. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> probably not because, look, Liberty Works isn't big enough to be a threat yet, so it's probably okay. Um, <laughs>
0: this was going to be my the, last question. I was going to ask you, have we fully covered what you describe as the right wing or the critique of the big tech companies from the right? Have we fully covered, covered that in our discussion so far?
1: Oh, we've we touch on it, you know. It roughly, I guess, falls into two camps. There's kind of the conservative critique, and then there's the libertarian critique. And they they overlap. The conservatives, you know, are concerned with like, you know, basically they feel as though their free speech is being hampered and hindered by being deplatformed and being put on the 75th page and all that sort of stuff. Libertarians also don't like that. Uh, I guess the difference will be that, you know, some conservatives will... You know, most conservatives still favor markets over government, but they're quite happy to use the levers of of government to suit them at times. You know, uh, whereas libertarians, depending on what type of libertarian, there's different types of libertarians, too. Um, You know, there's the Chicago schools and the Austrian schools and various types, but they largely are reluctant to go, hey, let's use government. I mean, Austrians will never want to use government. Chicago school is very reluctant to use it. Whereas conservatives, you know, will sometimes want to use it for the purposes of, you know, counteracting their infringement of free speech or they're counteracting their religious um, liberty or, you know, on totally different matters of defense and military matters and law and order. You know, they also, also like to use the, li- the levers of government. But, but they all largely recognize that, again, you know, coming back to the, the thing that we talked about briefly of, you know, as an economist and as a libertarian, I believe the greatest regulator and it is a genuine regulator is competition, free market competition. And, and to borrow from a left wing politician, Obama, I think, you know, to to turn towards market competition is really being the adult in the room. I think it's you're being kind of the child in the room when you wanted this government to be your nanny and immediately take care of you.
0: Sorry, Darren, I'm sp- Trying to understand your Obama reference. Are
1: you referring to the... Uh yeah, Obama, Obama was criticising people on the right as not being the adults in the room in a totally different context, sorry. But it was a phrase, I like the phrase, the adult in the room, you know, being the adult in the room. And I think people who, who look for market solutions are the adults in the room. I think people who look for, knee-jerk, look for government solutions are not the adults in the room. Okay, got
0: you, got you. Righto. Darren Brady Nelson, I really enjoyed that discussion. Uh it's great that you've given that overview of the different views on surveillance capitalism that are out there. And once your article is available, I'll put that up on well I'll put it in the show notes and uh yeah, put it on LinkedIn uh, and uh yes, uh, <laughs> where you where, where you've got to, yeah, you're you're doing really well on LinkedIn with uh yeah, with your followers with 10, 10 plus followers and uh, making you know, lots of astute observations on important economic and social issues from that libertarian perspective which is a valuable one to inject into the debate so very glad to have had your views on the program so thanks heaps darren
1: Thank you, and and I hope uh, people do get an opportunity to go look at the article because even if you don't agree with my point of view, at least I lay out, you know, if you like, three sort of world views to to look at this. And, you know, if you gravitate towards the left one, you'll see funny in there.
0: Absolutely. That's uh, that's a really positive feature of the article. Okay. Thanks so much, Darren. We'll wrap up now and uh, have a great day. Thank you. We've reached the end of another Economics Explained episode, so thanks for listening all the way through. If you're enjoying Economics Explained, please tell your family and friends and rate the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher or on whatever platform you are listening on. Finally, if you have any questions, comments or suggestions, please get in touch. My email address is gene.tunny at gmail.com. Until next week, goodbye.